0: We return not only to the Gospel of Luke this morning, but we return to the dinner party that we began to examine last week. So Luke chapter 14, if you would turn there with me, we'll be picking up with verse 15 of Luke chapter 14. I'll be reading through verse 24. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. As we saw last week, Luke is describing a dinner party where a sermon broke out. And as a result, the atmosphere at this gathering had grown quite tense. From the moment Jesus stepped through the door, the religious leaders, we see in chapter 14, verse 1, were watching him closely. They had been invited to the dinner for just that purpose. As the tension escalated, when he healed a man of dropsy and then silenced his critics with deft questions and an allusion to their own rabbinical practice of rescuing mere animals but not people on the Sabbath. As if that were not enough, Jesus went on to criticize both the guests and the host of this dinner party. The guests for seeking places of honor, and the host for inviting only those who could return the favor. In other words, Jesus had insulted everyone in the room. Breaking what must have been an awkward silence, one of the guests attempts to break the tension with a very pious sounding exclamation. You see it there in verse 15. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And that sounded good. You talk about the kingdom of God. All right, now we're being spiritual. Who can have a problem with that? But what he meant, of course, was blessed are the likes of us who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And it's not here, but I can imagine everyone else at the party replying with amen. Well said. Now, pass the potatoes. They hoped this would be an opportunity to change the subject and get the party back on track. But Jesus, once again, demonstrates that wherever he is, whoever he's with, whoever he's talking to, he is the one in charge. And he would not let that pass. He knew that the souls of these people were at stake. See, Jesus isn't just trying to get the upper hand with those who he knows are opposed to him. He's not simply trying to take over the situation and be able to leave saying, Ha, I got them. Jesus is concerned even with those who hate him. And so here he is. He knew that in their inmost being, These people had little desire for the kingdom, no matter what kind of pious declarations they might utter. They were very concerned for their own place and their own position. They were very concerned with how others might look at them. And so there, at this Sabbath feast, with the religious leaders at the table, Jesus delivers a parable. And it was a parable delivered at a dinner party, about a dinner party. Jesus understood how to take the situations in, that, that, that he found and turn them into teaching opportunities. And so he tells a parable about a banquet. In fact, he would use this parable of the great banquet to expose the true motivations and desires of the religious establishment as it was represented by those who were there at that party. And that same parable, now some 2,000 years later, continues to function as a warning to everyone who hears it. You come down to verse 16 and 17, and we read this, But he said to him, A man was giving a dinner party, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. So the picture is this. There is a man of great wealth who extends an invitation to his friends to attend a great banquet. And we know that he was a man of great wealth, both because of the size of the dinner party, the number of people he invited, and because we are told that he has slaves or servants. This would have been a feast that no one would want to miss. It was a great banquet. And as Jesus tells it, of course, it is intended to picture the ultimate kingdom banquet, the Supper of the Lamb. And it's a great symbol. The symbol of a feast is intended to communicate the eternal joys and satisfactions of heaven. Even in this world, a banquet is much more than a means of satisfying physical hunger. It's much more than eating. David Gooding explains it this way. He says, The metaphor of feasting, as distinct from merely eating a meal assures us that no true potential appetite, desire, or longing given us by God will prove to have been a deception, but all will be granted their richest and most sublime fulfillment. This big dinner, this great banquet, is a lavish and sumptuous image of the kingdom of heaven that will be exceeded By its reality, joyful satisfaction. And of course, the ultimate host is Jesus himself. This is the banquet that all of us are invited to. But there will be those who accept the invitation and those who will not. Now, we need to understand something about how these things happened. At this point in history, the the custom of invitation in Jesus' time actually involved two separate invitations. This can be traced back as far as the book of Esther. It continued on well into the 5th century A.D., When the Midrash on Lamentations said of the men of Jerusalem, none of them would attend a banquet unless he was invited twice. So when a prominent banquet was uh, being given, invitations were first sent out announcing the time of the upcoming meal, and guests would then indicate their acceptance. Yes, I'm going to come. We call it RSVP. Stands for some French words, I don't know, but RSVP, right? That's what we do. you got to let us know you're coming. Ladies, if you're coming to the ladies' ministry, the sign-up sheet's out there. We want to know you're coming. Then on the day of the banquet, a servant was sent out to re-invite those invited guests. And here's where this parable comes into play, to accept the first invitation and then to decline the second was seen as an unconscionable insult. Right? Now, if you know we're throwing a party and we ask people to RSVP and they do so and then they don't show up, well, You know, we're not thrilled with that. It's a little inconsiderate. We've prepared all of this food for a certain number of people, and now we've got all this extra because people who said they were coming didn't bother. Magnify that. And you have the situation that Jesus is describing here. In Jesus' parable, those who had accepted the first invitation unanimously begged off with lame excuses when the second invitation came. The first excuse was a real estate deal. You see that in verse 18. They all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Now, even on its face, this is clearly an excuse and not a legitimate reason. If someone's going to purchase land, what comes first? Do you purchase the land and then go look at it? Well, no, of course not. You look at the land, and if it meets your needs and the price is right and everything is taken into consideration, then you buy it. So the excuse itself doesn't make any sense, but in addition to that, it's a field. Where is it going to go? It'll still be there tomorrow. Why is it necessary to go and look at the land at the same time the banquet is being held? It's clearly just an excuse, and a poor one at that. The second excuse is, even less courteous. Verse 19, we read that another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. He didn't even pretend that he had some kind of duty to perform, like the first invitee. This one doesn't say, I have to do such and such. He simply said, I'm going to try them out. That's it. Didn't have to, he chose to. And this excuse is just as flimsy and transparent as the first one. Just as no one would buy a field without looking it over first, no one would buy ten oxen without first determining whether or not they were healthy and in proper working order. That would be foolish. Professional sports teams don't even make trades until they're sure the athlete has been through a physical. And they know that he is in good working order. Well, the third excuse didn't even feign politeness. Verse 20 says that another one said, I have married a wife. And for that reason, I cannot come. We don't know if it's because wife said, you're not going. (laughs) If he wanted to, this one could even have quoted scripture to support his excuse. After all, Deuteronomy 24 verse 5 says this, When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty, he shall be free at home one year and shall, be given happy, and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Now, if he had used that verse, he, of course, would have been using it improperly. Deuteronomy exempts newly men from the military, not from parties. But it seems like the kind of thing that this person would try to do. You'll note that the first two excuses had to do with possessions The last one had to do with affections. Possessions and affections cover virtually every reason why men and women exempt themselves from the kingdom. And of course, the basic thinking behind their regrets reveals mankind's universal rejection of the kingdom. It's obvious that their refusal to come to the feast was contrary to sound reason. The decision to forego a sumptuous feast prepared for you and your friends, to forego the joy and the laughter and the satisfactions offered to you, in order to go look at dirt and oxen, that doesn't make good sense. They'll all be there when you get back. Your new wife might even be glad for a little alone time. Jesus offers the kingdom a perpetual feast of peace, a feast of help and guidance and friendship and rest, supremacy over circumstances, joy, tranquility, immeasurable hope. He offers, in short, salvation. And yet people turn their backs on his feast preferring, rather, their possessions and their worldly affections. Now here is what we need to understand about this. Jesus' parable does not demean our possessions and affections. These are all legitimate. There's nothing wrong with owning things. And there's certainly nothing wrong with loving your wife. We certainly ought to check out our land. Try our oxen. Love our spouses, our children, our family and friends. In fact, the more a man lives upon the feast of Christ, the more fit he is. To do all of those other things. The field will be better tended. The oxen better utilized. The wife more tenderly and sacredly loved. But if our possessions and affections are so preferred that they become excuses to turn down Christ's feast, then our thinking is absurd and our souls are in danger. This parable is about priorities. What do we value? The things of this world? Or Christ and what he can give? The real reason these three men offered their lame excuses was that they really did not want to go to the feast. Their excuses, that in their minds made attendance at the feast impossible, would have evaporated if they really wanted to go. We make time for what we love, for what we desire for that which is a priority. We reschedule things in our lives when some opportunity comes up that we want to take advantage of. But they would not do that. They have no appetite for the things of God. It's easy to make general applications, but this text is talking about us and our preferences. We need to ask ourselves whether we like our car more than we like God. If Christ's banquet and a large worldly estate were spread before us as options, which would we prefer? Why is it that when Christ offers forgiveness, peace, eternal life, and an eternal feast... So few respond. Why is it that people don't want the kingdom? The answer, of course, is because their thinking is skewed. They do not think rightly about eternal things. In the depths of their heart, they don't want God. The religious leaders in Christ's day acted as if they wanted the kingdom, but in fact they did not. And it's an incredible tragedy. The hardest people to reach are often those who say, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Because they're assuming that that includes them. And if they already make that assumption, what do they need? They bow towards the word of God, but they are unwilling to come to the feast. Now, Luke does not tell us how those at the dinner party responded to Jesus' parable. Some of them must have understood where the story was going. That they cared little for the kingdom, despite their affirmation to be God-seekers. But I'm not sure any of them were ready for the next turn in the tale. Because Jesus takes this story someplace they would never anticipate. Because Jesus takes the story in a direction that they themselves would never go. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is offered to outcasts. Look at verse 21. The slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Now, historically, from the time of the giving of the law, the physically blemished were barred from full participation in the life of Israel, and particularly In worship. And those disabilities forced many into poverty, making them outcasts. But now, this sumptuous feast, lavishly appointed tables, the endless entrees of what we must believe is exquisite cuisine, were set before many who could not even see it all. Blind beggars. The lame and the crippled hobbled to the tables, their eyes taking in this bountiful feast which had been set before them, pitiful rags hanging off of bent limbs as they awkwardly find their place at the table. This, of course, is what the gospel does. This is where the gospel humbles us, isn't it? Because if we're in Christ, and you're reading through Jesus' parable here, this is where you find yourself. You find yourself among the poor, and the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. And there is nothing there to build up your self-image. There is nothing there to cause you to look at yourself and say, well, I certainly see why God chose me. It's pretty clear why I received an invitation. Now, if we know Jesus, we know better because we have seen our hearts. We know who we are. And we deserve nothing. We deserve nothing. This is what the the gospel does. You see this as you know, Paul, uh, if you'll remember, writes to the Corinthian church in his first epistle uh, to the Corinthians, there in the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And he's speaking about the gospel, and he's speaking about the, what seems to be foolishness when you look at how God has designed the gospel. And part of that foolishness is seen in the people that God has invited. Paul uses the word called, but it's the same idea. He says in verse 26, after discussing the seeming foolishness of the gospel, he writes to the Corinthians and says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. And of course, we all read that and say, yeah, that's me. Foolish, base, weak, despised. That is me. And God chose me in that condition. Just as the one who was throwing the feast... Brought in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame in that condition. In Jesus' parable, the subclasses of society, those with less noble standing, are called to the table. But it's realized that after those people have come around the table, there is still a lot more room. There are still many unfilled places at the table. And so the servant approaches his master, says in verse 22, The slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. This is a prophetic Reference to the Gentiles who would soon be invited into the kingdom through faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul's heart would be aflame with the the gospel mission to the Gentiles. Historically, the phrase compel, literally, it means force, force them to come in. Historically, this has been abused. As, for example, by the leaders of the Inquisition, that is not the kind of force that Jesus was talking about. We don't force people into the kingdom by putting them on the rack. We don't force people into the kingdom at the point of a sword. But the point of it is that outcasts, Gentiles, and the poor would need some convincing in order to overcome their natural reticence. The servant was not to take no for an answer. The feast must be filled. No seat can be left empty and so it will be in the eternal state when all the seats are filled by Jew and Gentile many of whom are poor and crippled and blind and lame and then the feast will begin and what rejoicing there will be and if we are in Christ we will be there because we have been compelled to come in no one comes to the Father no one comes unless he is drawn Drawn, dragged. The same kind of imagery. We would have preferred, this is how fallen we were. This is how fallen the world is. In our fallen state, we would prefer to remain poor, blind, and lame. But God touches us with his spirit by the gospel he changes us so that we ask ourselves how could I possibly have desired to remain as I was how could I possibly have desired this world in opposition to Christ And in so doing, in in, in making the dead live, God is drawing. God compels us to come in. Revelation 19 says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Do you know Christ? If you know Christ, you're a part of his bride. And this is what awaits you. This is The true feast. Well, presuming that silence now prevailed at the dinner party, Jesus' final words must have settled with a pall over the guests. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. And everyone there would have understood that Jesus was setting forth a personal confrontation. They were the original invitees, but not one would be admitted to the messianic meal unless there was a response of repentance. At that moment, every soul in that room was lost. Those custodians of the law, The leaders of Israel were doomed to judgment because they accepted the first invitation and they rejected the second. They had received two invitations to the Messianic banquet. The first had come through the law and the prophets and the writings. They had answered yes. Of course they wouldn't miss this banquet. Whenever it would come, just send the customary second invitation And we'll be there for the feast. The second invitation came. It was delivered by the Son of God himself. It was delivered, hand delivered by the Messiah. And they rejected it. They preferred their possessions and their affections to heaven. They loved the world first, and they couldn't be bothered. All of their religious posturing was empty. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Nothing more than pious jargon. Their kingdom longing was bogus. Their true longing was for worldly comfort. There was such an urgency in Christ's method here. He was combative because he was aching to reach down into them and draw them to repentance. They must hear and do his word to avoid judgment. And the question for Jesus' hearers then and now is very simple. Do you want to attend the feast? Still there is room. There is room. Until Jesus comes again, there is room. And no one who desires to attend will be turned away. But if there are things in our lives which are more important, our portfolios, our homes, our positions, then we will not be admitted. Because there can't be two priorities in our lives. There cannot be two things to which we are ultimately devoted. It is either Jesus, which then gives meaning to everything else in our life, Or those things in our lives are given a place that they do not rightly deserve. And we will try in vain for all eternity to be content with those things. To find meaning there which they cannot provide. It has cost Jesus everything to prepare the feast Pain, tears, his flesh, his blood. Now he invites us to come and drink the blood that he has shed. And to eat the bread that cost him everything. Turn from those things that you think were so important. And come to the feast. See Jesus for who he is. Give up everything else, and everything will be given to you. Father, make it so. Work within the hearts, Father, of those that you desire to compel to come to the feast. We look forward to that glorious day when, as your bride, we will recline with you. At the wedding feast. That feast which will last for all eternity. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make it so. Amen.